You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Welcome, welcome everyone to the Future of Asia podcast series. Today's topic is called A Turning Point for India's Economy. I am joined by three of my colleagues. I am joined by Gautam Kumra. He is the managing partner of McKinsey in India. I am joined by Anu Madhavkar. She is a partner with McKinsey's Global Institute based in uh, India. And also I am joined by Shri Shankar, senior partner out of Mumbai, who advises on urbanization and economic growth in India and more broadly across Asia. So ladies and gentlemen, let's just warm up a little bit. Let's talk about your experience of the last six months. And give one positive outcome or reflection from the COVID era over the last months that we've learned. Gotham, do you want to start us off? Yeah, well, you said in a, in a positive start. I think I would say, Oliver, I have been struck and uh, even I would say positively surprised by the resilience. I think the resilience of the country, of its people and of our colleagues. Uh, I've been impressed by how it's, it's not been easy, but I've been impressed by how people have found ways to operate and uh, be at least reasonably effective in this new operating market. So that would be my reflection. Anu? I think uh, adaptability, Oliver. Not just for people like us who adapted quite easily, just given the nature of work we do, but all sorts of small vendors, small service providers, the way they've just embraced remote forms of working or, or the way they've wrapped their heads around how to protect themselves in their own communities, even if it's in informal housing. I'm very inspired by that. Thank you. Mr. Shanke. Yeah, I... I'm particularly inspired by how the large Indian cities, for example, the city that I live in, Mumbai, actually rose to the challenge of COVID uh, despite having 60% population in slums. There was a possibility of a runaway COVID, but it was well managed. And actually, the healthcare system rose to the challenge. It was a big positive surprise for me. Got it. Thank you. Listen, let's dig into the topic at hand, which is India, India's situation, India's growth, India post-COVID. Let's start with what was the state of play for India's economic development before COVID-19? Who would like to kick us off on that question? Maybe I can uh, add a comment here, uh, Oliver. I think if you, it depends a bit on the time frame you take, but I think if you took a longer term view of, say, last 30 years, uh, as you're aware, India is one of the 18 outperforming economies globally that has delivered high rate of per capita GDP growth rate. Uh, real economic growth rate has been in the region of 6.8 to 7% over 30 years. But it's fair to say that going into COVID, I think the Indian economy was on a difficult wicket. The momentum had been slowing down uh, from 2013 to 2019 on two particular markers, uh, which had been engines for growth for India. One is on private investment. If you look at bank credit, had been slowing down. Level of investment rate in the economy had come down by about five percentage points. Also, India's uh, participation in the global markets, 
you know if you look at uh, india's exports as a share of gdp went down from about 25% to 19% over the 2013 to 2019 period so so both the cylinders of india's growth previous growth private investment and uh, share of exports actually were faltering we also saw in this period by the way a decrease in labor participation rates uh, which had been falling for more than a decade and eventually it led into a growth rate of only about 4% or 4.2% in 2019 2020 going into covid so it's fair to say oliver that uh, we had been uh, slowing down as an economy and we had there was some structural weakness in the economy quite since the global economic crisis of 2008 and that has uh, exposed the economy to the challenges now being imposed by covid yeah i would like to add on to the long term frame of uh, india's growth i'd like to point out the inclusiveness of this growth a bit okay it's easy to criticize obviously the last few years and yes india has been slowing down but it has been uh, remarkable that during a 10 year period the last 10 years almost 270 million people uh, were lifted out of poverty as well as the household electricity access is now 95% and you know the household sanitation aspect is 100% right almost everybody has a bank account you know so the inclusiveness of this the bottom of the pyramid aspect i think has been, have been quite good but definitely the economy has been slowing down in terms of job creation for example the net job creation in the last 6 years was close to zero but at the same time i think a number of inclusiveness related advances uh, have been a positive uh, surprise for the economy i think there's also been in addition to that i think there's also been a, a remarkable revolution on the digital front and the pace at which digital access has actually increased in the country in the last 4 years or so and the strength of the underlying digital platform namely the aadhar digital id platform and the ability of the government to reach people directly or for consumers to reach you know vendors and providers directly i think that has been another important aspect of state of play which has actually helped us deal and uh, deal with and tackle covid and distributing support to households and so on in a way that that has been extremely useful actually at this point so what i what i hear is and now we're talking pre covid high growth i hear inclusive growth on a number of dimensions i hear about you know the growth of the digital platforms i haven't heard you talk much about innovation innovation amongst companies would one of you care to comment about that because i think there has been quite a bit of that too i don't know who wants to take a a stab at that maybe there are different angles to innovation i think in india i think in in many ways i think it's been innovation around business models and being able to deliver products and services at costs that have never been achieved before i could just give you two examples of innovation uh, all over that struck me i think if you look at telecom costs right india just 20 years ago when i remember when i started with mckinsey 27 years ago we didn't really have mobile phones uh, to a point now that uh, you look at the same movie 30 years later where virtually a billion people now have access to a mobile phone and uh, about 300 million of them with smartphones and so forth and the cost of telecom right it's, it's probably the lowest cost telephony market in the world so that's just one example of how we have innovated 
leapfrog technologies, whether it's 3G, 4G, and 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 done that. And, and data costs in India are again one of the lowest in the world, if not the lowest. And you see that pattern repeating consistently in different products, right? Uh, India is also a market for low cost automotive. We were one, one of the first ones to produce a three thousand dollar car. And so, so I would say frugal innovation, learning from the West and presenting those products and services at costs that have never been achieved before. By the way, pharmaceuticals is another example. Any drug compared to the U.S., the same product, same molecule, typically one thirty at the price of the U.S. And yet, the industry makes reasonable, healthy margins. So, a lot of innovation on sourcing, manufacturing, development to deliver product at those kinds of price points. I think one. Uh kind of uh, consequence of this innovative drive that India's companies have shown is that uh, the economy as a whole has sort of been through shocks and cycles over the last three decades. It's not been a smooth or steady ride. As is expected, we've lived through at least two or three domestic crises and, of course, two or three global or regional crises over this period. But through those shocks and wobbles, I think each time there has been there have been new engines right of growth and productivity that have actually come on board and helped to buoy and shore up economic growth so whether it was the IT revolution of the 90s or more recently the telecom revolution that has actually enabled all of the digital not just access but also innovation right in terms of B2C companies so these engines have actually helped stabilize the economy and I think should be considered as one of the natural endowments, if you will, of India going forward as well. Very good. Let's now, Anu, you mentioned that India has been through some of these crises. Let's zoom in on COVID now. What has so far been the impact of COVID-19 on India's economy? I don't know You know, who wants to take your first stab. Sharish, do you want to take first stab at that? Yeah, this is the effect of COVID on Indian economy is still unfolding. Okay, right. We are now in the sixth month globally as well as in India, right? The scenarios that we have projected, and these are scenarios only, show pretty adverse impact of COVID on the Indian economy. Somewhere between 3 to 9% contraction in the Indian GDP during the current fiscal year, right? That's pretty dramatic. I think that's probably the lowest growth in the last 50 or 60 years. In addition, as a result, consequent result of this, you know, the NPAs, the non-performing assets will probably move from double, 7 to 14%, right? And unemployment in the first couple of months went to almost 20%, even though since then it has come down to 10%. But India may not have the substantial fiscal resources that will be available to the developed countries. And therefore, this is going to be a set of tough two years for India. Now, the positive news in this is that we're quite happy to hear that the government announced, in fact, two or three long pending structural reforms, right? Such as allowing the farmers to sell directly to consumers and companies, right? Privatizing the electricity distribution companies, you know, which was on the agenda for like 20 years, right? And as well as really providing the portable benefits to the migrant workers. Today, if you move from one region to another, you may not have got the benefits, but that has been sorted out. So some reform process have already started. It's a positive news. But overall, it will be a tough two years for India is what our sense is. Go ahead. Anu, would you like to add? 
the labor market implications of this are also worth noting, Oliver, in which we're basically seeing that levels of either unemployment or what is more characteristic of an informal labor market, which is underemployment, very little income earning potential. So that has become widespread at the time of COVID-19. Unlike many of the other crises that India has been through, which may have had their roots in global capital flows, may have kind of flown into India through larger institutions, this crisis, because it affects health and safety on the ground, is affecting every Indian worker right down to the smallest informal sector worker. Uh, and we've seen uh, unemployment rates spiking to 20% in the months of the lockdowns with the tentative restarts and subsequent lockdowns and restarts that are going to be a matter of reality for the next several months. We will see persistent both unemployment, underemployment, as well as a tremendous pressure on small and micro enterprises. And we reckon that on an unmitigated, unprotected basis, there could be a lot of small loans actually turning non-performing and uh, obviously resulting in pressure both on the borrower as well as on the financial system. Uh, financial system NPAs could be anything incrementally between 7 and 14%. Now, I think the central bank and the government have taken a set of very helpful measures that span moratoriums, credit guarantee schemes in which the government guarantees some of these loans and you know, removes the pressure and, and allows the banks to actually lend to these small enterprises. But nevertheless, it is a grave shock. And I think it really puts into sharp relief the fact that looking ahead, given the 90 million odd workers who will incrementally enter India's workforce in the coming decade, it is going to be extremely important to get our job creation and income generation engines alive and humming again once the worst of the crisis is over. Asia's standing in the world has changed, and it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Thank you. I want to pick up on uh, something Sharish said, because Sharish, I think you said, the GDP could contract between three to nine percent. That's a big gap. You know what? What determines if it's three versus nine? You know what are some of the factors that drive in either either way? Yeah, as I said, that the crisis is still unfolding. You know, so we were the, the models that we put were trying to figure out when would manufacturing start in a full scale, for example. Right, many of the factories are still running at fifty percent capacity utilization. When will the consumption engine start? I'm still sitting at home, okay, and I haven't bought anything other than food, right? And when will that restart, right? Would it happen in September or would it happen in December, right? When will people start buying cars, right? And so on and so on. So there's a lot of uncertainty depending on the level of quote-unquote lockdown. The Indian government has substantially opened up but people's behaviors are still very different. So therefore, there is a lot of uncertainty and that's where the minus three to minus nine, which we projected, by the way, in May of 2020, right, comes in. Anu, you want to add on? You have done this work quite in detail. Absolutely. I think there are two 
dimensions of uncertainty here at play and one is the one that Shirish talked about which is we just don't understand how the virus itself is is going to be contained or how successfully and and what the risk of resurgence and repeated lockdowns over large parts of the country could be potentially right plus of course the behavioral issues and challenges i mean people's behaviors have changed and this is sticky and it will not come back very quickly right so that's one dimension the other dimension is how effective are economic policy interventions going to be to stabilize the economy or to boost consumption in the face of sort of the wage declines and job losses that people have had and there are genuinely uncertainties on both fronts and and therefore this sort of relatively wide wide range of minus 3 to minus 9 but whatever that number is if we converge the I, i believe the consensus view right now is about minus 4 to 5 but you know we don't hazard a guess whatever that number is i think it's it's worth noting that this would be the first contraction in india's gdp in the last 40 years so through all the wobbles and dips we've never actually grown negatively in india's at least you know four decade economic history yeah just a contrast that i think gotham said earlier on that you know since 1992 india has been growing almost somewhere 6 almost 7% on average per year and now we contrast that to something that's going to be minus 3 to minus 9 so that is a huge huge change huge change very tough times so let's go back and now let's change topics let's talk about what steps can be taken to return india's economy to a high growth track gotham why don't you take first pass so whatever as you've seen our nation i think we rise to the occasion based on face of the crisis and it is our sense that uh, now is the opportunity to substantially scale and accelerate the several structural reforms that are needed in the country to both deliver jobs and economic growth rates you know given the indian population and the demographics uh, we need uh, to produce about 90 million jobs over the next decade right to keep unemployment in check by the way if uh, women participation in labor workforce to increase further we could have another 55 million people coming into the workforce so even conservatively speaking we need to be able to create about 90 million jobs in the non form uh, sector now if you look at that challenge right uh, and by the way we hope that uh, you know 30 million people will migrate from agriculture to non agriculture in this period of time as it happened in other economies that have delivered economic growth rates now to put things in perspective you know this requires basically a economic growth rate of about 8 to 8.5% right which will come from a combination of two things on one hand employment growth of about 1.5% per year and on top of that a productivity growth rate of about 6.5 to 7%. Now the good news here is that India has done bits of this in the past. You see if you go back to the early 2000 decade in the period of 2000 to 2012 India had uh, generated uh, employment at the rate of about 1.5% a year. Similarly if you look at a period 2013 to 2018 in the last 5 years when we didn't create any jobs but productivity did grow at about 6 to 7% a year. So in other words if India could match the employment growth of the early 2000s and the productivity growth rate of the last 6 7 years we have an opportunity to get the economy to an 8 8 and out this economic growth rate track and create the 90 million jobs that i talked about so that is the real imperative and what we outline in this report is really a series of measures and my colleagues can expand on that but if i can just say at the outset three big measures right one is a whole set of high productivity frontier models 
and uh, maybe one of my colleagues can expand on that. That's big imperative. Second, uh, the role of building thousand large and ten thousand small slash mid sized companies, and then finally, the need for structural reform in six areas, and the need to increase risk capital. So there are probably four teams, Oliver. We can explore any one of those as we like, but there are four teams we've outlined the report on what needs to happen to deliver this eight and a half percent growth rate and ninety million jobs. So let's uh, let's double click on those three topics. Let's start with the first one. So I think you called high productivity frontier models. Models, high productivity frontier models. What what does that mean? And give us some examples if you don't mind, Sharish. Yeah. So the first set of what we call the growth booster theme, uh, which has the high productivity models incorporated in it, is what we call global hubs serving India and the world. And this is just as an example, India imports $115 billion of electronics. And the trend has slowly already started, but a lot of it can be manufactured and assembled in India. And just as an example, this is the manufacturing revolution that has escaped India for the last eight, 10 years, but could be a great time uh, to build on. So that's just one of the themes under the global hubs, right? The second theme under the second model under the global hubs is the next S-curve on IT. India has already been known as an IT information technology superpower. But the next generation of digital, artificial intelligence, machine learning is several billion dollars worth of export opportunity. Similarly, something that is quite obvious to anybody that looks at India, tourism. India, India has only 10 million foreign tourists a year. Many cities in Asia has more than that, by the way. And taking that from 10 million to 50 million, and again, building on to connecting to the world is another third sub-theme under this overall theme of global hubs. So there's just one theme explained. Anu, maybe you want to take the next theme to explain on these growth booster themes. So I should say that the three growth boosters cumulatively represent a potential of point. $5 trillion of economic value in 2030. So this is a very sizable set of high productivity opportunities. And the first one that Shirish talked about, the global hubs together are, are about $1 trillion of that. Uh, the second one is to think about how India can really build competitive and efficient uh, platforms. So production platforms that in turn can enable all, all sorts of enterprises to flourish and compete. And when you think about the platform that enterprises need, the core elements of that, the first is really around, you know, low cost, highly efficient financial intermediation. So you can think about a financial system that has the ability to use digital automation, all sorts of technology to deliver credit and capital products to mobilize savings and so forth. So the financial institutions are one part of this. I think power and logistics are another key part of that efficient production platform that India can build. And both power and logistics costs can actually come down by 20 to 25% just by using, you know, much more market-based, much more technology-intensive 
business models to serve customers in both these uh, domains, right? And that in turn unlocks lots of efficiencies around the country in terms of other firms as well. Uh, and then a third example in this bucket is really the notion that you can transform the way government interacts with businesses, particularly small businesses that don't have the wherewithal to manage lots of compliances. So for example, today, the average micro or small enterprise in India needs to do something like 20 plus registrations and licenses each year, uh, but as many as 120 filings of information, 250 compliances a year. If you had business models that actually reinvented all those processes, made use of you know, market forces and market participants to deliver these services better to businesses, it would unlock a huge amount of value. So cumulatively, this is really the second theme, uh, which is around creating competitive and efficient platforms on which other businesses can grow and flourish. Yeah, Anu, I just wanted to build on to what Anu said on this second growth booster themes, which is efficient and productive platforms, right? I just wanted to give the power sector as an example. I think India is the only country across 20 countries where commercial and industrial tariff is higher than the residential tariff, right? I think it's not, this situation does not exist anywhere else. And with that, a whole set of competitiveness on manufacturing and so on does not come up, right? So therefore, the power cost needs to drop by 20, 25%. And there's a set of reforms which the government has announced, but need to undertake to get that done. Just as one example of the high efficiency power and logistics model that Anu spoke about. Got it. And now, and the third growth booster, Anu? The third growth booster is really to reinvent the way India and Indians live and, and work, essentially. So new ways of living and working. And by this, we mean both, for example, much more productive and resilient physical living and working conditions in India's cities. We have a far too little, I think, capital investment in creating the right environment in which cities can both house people in decent and affordable housing. There is a huge affordability gap in terms of housing in our cities. And equally in city centers or in areas which need to attract and create spaces where uh, businesses can flourish and people can work, we find that zoning regulations actually keep you know, building in those areas uh, way below potential. So there is actually scope to think about cities very differently, urban infrastructure, housing, commercial space, master plan that and create very welcoming and resilient environments there. That's one example. Uh, the other example is a much more distributed, collaborative, sharing economy type of model, which actually comes very easily in India, which is quite a fragmented labor market to begin with. Uh, but the power of all those digital platforms I had talked about earlier, uh, many of them linked to the Aadhaar digital ID and with telecom access or internet access so widely available, you could have an explosion of everything from education to healthcare to creative services, you know, lots and lots of remote work. This could also enable a lot of women to enter the workforce or more semi-urban and rural parts of India to be integrated into the modern economy through these collaborative sharing economy types of models where everyone can participate, for example. 
And I think the one other thought I would have on all of the three growth boosters is the following, that these are important not just because they represent $2.5 trillion of economic value or GDP, but each of them is actually a potential pathway in which workers who have aspirations to raise their income can actually climb that ladder or move towards the productivity frontier. If we have more businesses and enterprises, for example, in retail trade, you know, modern trade and, reco- and e-commerce operate at nine to 10 times the productivity of the traditional small fragmented store. But their employment today is a very small share, probably about 1% of total employment in that sector. So by enabling more businesses to move to that frontier, it's also a way to pull up workers who are operating in low productivity environments and give them options and ways to actually raise their wages and raise their income by moving closer to that frontier. So what you're outlining here is, and and the third theme is new ways of living, new ways of working. And, And as you say, this is going to pull up the workers, pull up the citizens. We've also recently launched a a, a report on climate risk and mitigation across Asia. And clearly, India is one of the countries that is going to be affected. So can you say a little bit about, you know, what's the future in India in terms of sustainability? Have you looked at that? Yeah, maybe I would take that up. If you take sustainability in two elements, one is related to the mitigation aspect. I think India is really on a good path uh, to get renewables in for the energy production. So the energy systems of India is actually included in this third growth booster themes. And another 180 gigawatts of renewables can come in, is planned. This is solar and wind mainly, but also some hydropower and so on. And India has enormous potential. It said that just the desert of Rajasthan, solarized, can can provide electricity to the whole of India, right? So therefore, that is the mitigation aspect of climate change. But our current report did bring out one or two very important risks that were actually not as well understood in India, which is the risk of flooding and uh, sea level breaching, as well as the risk of heat waves. Okay, I think recently we did uh, publish this report based on the global report in India. And in one of the key presentations I did, for example, in in an international conference in Mumbai, a number of government authorities said that we did not know of this risk, especially the heat wave risk, as well as the flooding risk. And they said that, look, we need to incorporate it in our infrastructure planning and in our risk mitigation measures. Okay, so it's beginning to get slowly understood and addressed. But by the way, the opportunities around this are also quite a large number. And therefore, India should use the climate change and mitigation as an opportunity to really build a new India in this particular growth booster theme. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Listen, three themes that you talked about. I heard about global hubs. I heard about the building competitive and efficiency platforms. And we heard about new ways of living and new ways of working, which totals, I think, Anu, you said, was a $2.5 trillion in total value. Now, 
in making this happen, what needs to be the role of the states? What needs to be the role of the business sector going forward? Uh, Gotham. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I can start with the role of business because it is a firm belief that to achieve these aspirations, Oliver, I think uh, there is a very strong imperative to build world-class competitive firms. Right? We've seen this in our outperformer research that the number of large world-class competitive firms is directly correlated to sustained economic growth rates. Now, if you think of the Indian corporate sector as a large ladder, uh, we have a couple of interesting things going on. Firstly, you find that there are very few companies at the top of the ladder. When you think about large companies defined as more than half a billion dollars in size, India has only about 600 of those, contributing about 40% of GDP. It is our sense that by 2030, this number needs to triple to about 1,800 companies that should collectively deliver about 80% of India's GDP. So the first observation is that we need more companies at the top of the ladder. The second observation is that part of the reason we don't have enough companies at the top of the ladder is because we have a missing middle problem. If you look at the small and medium-sized companies between $50 million and $500 million, India has far fewer firms than what it needs. Uh, it is our hope and expectation that uh, about 10,000 companies can rise from being very small companies to becoming these mid-sized companies and fill the vacuum in the middle. And over time, many of them can rise to become large companies that I talked about earlier. Now, the reason why large companies are important is, as you, as we all know from our own client service, uh, you know, they are much more productive. Large firms in India are 11 times more productive. Labor productivity is 11 times more than small medium firms and twice over productive. By the way, they already in India drive 40% of India's exports are delivered by large companies. And 20% of the formal sector employment is driven by the large companies. So there is no wishing away from the fact that we need to have an ecosystem where more innovation happens at the bottom, more entrepreneurs set up new businesses. But we put in place the conditions, the enabling conditions for these companies to rise from the bottom to the middle, which is missing today, and from the middle to the large. And if we do so, I think we think that that can actually fuel a lot of the things we talked about in terms of job creation, innovation, and so forth. By the way, this picture is very different by sector. If you just take the engineering and construction sector as an example, India has virtually only one or two major firms there. You know, we need at least 10 times that uh, to meet India's potential of construction real estate. So you can go sector by sector and you will find that there are some pretty serious gaps and opportunities for building large competitive firms. And we think this should be actually a, a, a real priority. Very good. Sharish, would you like to add? Yeah. So the role of businesses is something that uh, Gautam mentioned. I would just like to point on the sectoral and the financial uh, sector reforms uh, that are required. And then perhaps Anu can talk about uh, the, uh, the sectoral reforms that are, uh, that are required. Right. So I would like to point that we were quite surprised, Oliver, when we started looking at what sectors will create these jobs? Obviously, we talked about the growth booster theme, but as we started adding up across the eight or nine sectors that typically comprise uh, a whole economy, personally, I was surprised that out of the 90 million jobs, 25 million have to come from construction. And that's where Gautam mentioned the need for, <laughs> the need for large companies, real estate, affordable housing, 
as well as infrastructure okay the need to build india at this stage is extremely important and while we will of course look at all the growth booster themes but there are some sectors that really uh, stand apart and that's where i just wanted to bring construction and therefore construction related reforms the real estate related reforms are extremely important i would not go into all the details but it's related to land market reforms making more land available making land less costly making construction far more productive so i just wanted to point that out as perhaps one of the sectors that really needs to take off it's one in four jobs okay that india needs right so just wanted to point that out the other point i wanted to make which anu can perhaps build on is that a lot of people ask us oliver all this is fine but where will the money come from okay. where will especially the risk capital of this will come from okay because maybe the debt capital is there but where will the equity capital come from and i think india is really short all the analysis we have done is india is short of the risk capital equity capital required for this growth right and how to get that done how our savings need to go from gold and real estate to financial products like mutual funds and insurance and so on is a very very important shift 4% of our savings need to shift to what we call risk investments and how to incentivize that and how to reform around that it's critical otherwise we'll fall short of money required for this uh, growth rate anu maybe you want to build on to this further on financing the growth uh, just to put it into perspective this is obviously a critical component of both just growth as well as making the investments that actually lift productivity to 7% or so that we need and on a pre covid basis india's investment rate had slowed down and it had come down to about 32 or 33% and a relatively large portion of this was actually government investment as opposed to private investment now against that 32 33% we would think that an investment rate of at least 37% is what is required which means as you go up you know the numbers mount and by 2030 it would mean 2.4 trillion dollars of investment in that year of which the mid and small segment which are so critical to have sort of the vibrancy and upward mobility of companies and innovators we talked about so that mid and small segment would need 800 billion dollars or so of capital and half of that roughly would be risk capital so the numbers are large the good news is that there is potential in the economy and from from a domestic savings perspective to actually generate that in addition to of course fdi increasing and foreign inflows increasing the domestic savings market can be put put to work in financial intermediation much better by creating the right sorts of tax and other incentives addressing barriers both tax and non tax barriers that come in the way of wealth accumulation and people really investing in asset classes like pension funds insurance mutual funds or you know all sorts of alternative investments like reits or alternative investment funds and so on so unshackling some of that and allowing and attracting more savings into those instrument classes would would really help the second piece is really to reduce the cost of credit so on a like to like basis we think that in in nominal terms a firm in india would uh, face a credit cost which was about 
500 basis points higher than its counterpart in another, you know, a high growth emerging economy. And of these 500 basis points, there are two or three levers that, if addressed, can actually reduce this quite comprehensively. So streamlining the government's borrowing program so that there's less demand on you know, national funds and therefore more funds available to the commercial sector. The second is really to address the overhang of non-performing assets, the credit costs of which are inflating uh, the credit costs for new borrowers. So addressing that overhang through perhaps a special asset bank or a so-called bad bank, which can take these non-performing loans, even in a post-COVID era, this becomes critical actually to think about to address the resolution of those assets separately, but not load on those incremental costs to new borrowers, for example. And finally, you can think about OPEX and streamlining that as well. Thank you. Thank you, Anu. So we've talked quite a bit about the business sector. Can we shift for a, a minute and talk a little bit about the role of the state in this? Sharish? Yeah. So a number of financial sector reforms that Anu spoke about is do rightfully belong to the central government, right? Through the Ministry of Finance and through the Reserve Bank of India. So that rightfully belongs to the central government. And there are many other reforms that also rightfully belong to the central government, like the incentives for manufacturing, the tax changes, and so on. But as we started looking at it, personally, we were quite surprised that how many of the reforms that we have mentioned actually come in the realm of the state governments. We found that almost 60% of the recommended reforms have to be done by the state government. And anytime we spoke about reforms, it's always directed towards the central government. So as a part of this report, we also want to firmly point to that Many of the state governments have not done the market facilitating reforms that could have been done. So the Indian state governments have to step up. Just as an example, we talked about land market reforms, bringing cost of real estate down by 15 to 20%. That belongs to the state government. Indian constitution, all land market reforms is about states. We talk about power sector. All powers, most power sector reforms belong to the state governments. We spoke about agriculture. Agriculture is firmly a state topic. And a number of the reforms that we spoke about, again, will be in the realm of state government. So in addition to the, towards the prime minister and the cabinet minister, I think we firmly have to focus on the state chief ministers and their cabinet to play the role that is required for the eight and eight, eight and a half percent growth rate. And there are some good examples. Gujarat in manufacturing, Karnataka in services, but they're a little bit few and far between. Okay, so therefore, one of the key pushes of this report is firmly focus on facilitating and enabling reforms at the state government level. Thank you. Thank you, Sharish. Now, I'm going to start rounding us out. And to end us, what I would like to do is ask you each one question. So let me start with Sharish and Anu, let me, Sharish, if you put yourself in the shoes of business leaders in India, what is the one ask that you have of them? And Anu, 
if you put yourself in the shoes of government or state leaders, what is the one ask you would have of them? Uh, Sharish, why don't you go first? Yeah, if I put uh, myself in the shoes of the business leaders, the ask to the business leaders is really those three growth booster themes. Just embrace them because those are six, eight, ten times the productivity. Okay, so the scale and speed of productivity enabling business practices is will be my one ask. And again, taking back the construction sector instead of the traditional construction methods, if we use high productivity, uh, prefabricated construction, it's eight to 10 times more productive and therefore eight to 10 times less time, just as an example. So really fully embracing the productivity enhancing 43 business models, three growth booster themes will be my one key ask to the business leaders. Thank you, Suresh. Anu? There is no single silver bullet, but there is one key ask that can make all the difference. And for me, what I would ask government leaders, both at the center and at the state level, it's basically to make economic reforms a number one priority item. We need the resolve and the conviction at this point in time that uh, very sweeping, important, critical economic reforms need to be undertaken in the next 12 to 18 months. This has to be tackled in an all-out manner. The speed and scale of reform is something that we need, which we have prob- probably seen in different measures through India's last 30 years, starting with the early 90s and the liberalization. But every time India has set its mind to do something bold and big and to do it well, it has actually managed to make great progress in a 12 to 18 month period, as we've seen with several programs in the past across education, sanitation, the national highway program and so forth. This is the time to make economic reforms your number one agenda and put enough leadership capacity, technocratic capacity, and monitoring and execution capacity behind this for the next 18 months. Thank you, Anu. Thank you. And um, I would love to ask Gotham to summarize us and round us out, uh, Gotham. What, if you look forward, what is your narrative about India between now and 2030? So, Oliver, as I think has uh, been discussed, I think this is a real leadership moment for India. Uh, I think much like uh, the 1991 uh, crisis when uh, we had run out of foreign exchange reserves to even fund a month of imports, and India rose to the occasion. And I think it is a similar leadership moment for India. I think uh, the good news here is that the size of the price is significant. Right? As we have seen here, we have the opportunity to produce two and a half million billion, uh, sorry, trillion dollars in gross value through these new high-frontier business models and uh, create employment opportunities for 90 million of our colleagues and people who have high aspirations. So the size of the price is huge. But I think what this would require is decisive leadership on many of the counts that uh, Shirish and Anu have talked about. And I think if we act with decisive leadership, I think we have the potential to put India squarely as the third pole in what is a bipolar world today by 2030, right right after the United States and China. If we miss this opportunity and uh, sort of plod along at the 5 5.5% economic growth rate we have seen recently, I think we would have failed to meet the aspirations of a rising India, and I think we would have missed a decade. 
I think the last thought I would say is I think uh, it, India competing in India has never been for the faint hearted. I think uh, even though we've had 7% economic growth rate over 30 years, uh, let's not forget that it's gone through its peaks and troughs. And I think the next decade will be no different. But I think if you were to embrace, as Shirish said, I think these three growth engines, and if the country were to rise to the occasion, I think that there are few countries in the world that can match the promise of what is still to be realized in a country like India. Thank you. Thank you, Gautam. Thank you, Anu. Thank you, Sarish. Thank you for being such great Thank you. participants. This has been a very thoughtful, been a very fact-based and a very heartfelt conversation. Thank you so much. And to everybody else, thank you for listening in. Have a great day. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Music